Thank you, Philip. I'd like to give you guys a, a glimpse of one of my best, fondest memories of growing up, especially you guys that are students. This was me back when, when I was younger than what you guys are right now. We lived in the Rio Grande Valley. It was this, uh, this rich, fertile area. And in our yard, there was a tangerine tree there. And so my brother and I in season had free reign from my mom and dad to go out, climb this tangerine tree, sit on a limb, and pick all the tangerines we wanted. If you can picture a six-year-old and a seven-year-old sitting there on a limb, picking tangerines and, and sweet, juicy, sticky you know, stuff just going down the chin, on the hands, all over the arms, as much as we wanted. It was this dream for a kid, not a care in the world. It was like this perfect setting for us. And, and our home wasn't the only home with that. I've got a picture of a tree. This is typical. This is an orange tree. Uh, and most yards would have something like this. And, and most kids would have the very same experience. It was this, this area of rich, fertile ground. It wasn't just trees and uh, lawns. It was citrus groves. I've got a picture of kind of one of the rows of a citrus grove there. And I've got another picture of an aerial shot if you look at this, uh, the, what looks like small plants in the bulk of the picture, those are citrus trees. And there were citrus trees as far as the eye could see there. It was this rich, fertile land. It wasn't just citrus. It was all kinds of farming. My, my best friend in junior high and high school, his granddad farmed 80 acres. And so my best friend drove the tractor on the 80 acres. And another classmate uh, had a family that, that farmed thousands of acres there. And uh, in this fertile ground, there were millions of people fed from it. And I must say now, a bit sadly, that, that some of the orange groves have been bulldozed down and cemented over because commerce can make more money than orange groves. But, but it's been this rich, fertile area. And I found myself thinking this week, the last two weeks, in this, in this rich, fertile soil that has fed so many, 50 years before my family moved there, it was scrub brush and mesquite trees with thorns and rattlesnakes. That was what it was. Same soil, rich, fertile soil, scrub brush, thorns, rattlesnakes. And it was 50 years before and 100 years before that, and only God knows probably 1,000 before that. I mean, centuries, maybe millenniums of this rich, fertile soil, but nothing desirable about it scrub brush, thorns, and rattlesnakes. And I found myself thinking, and the answer is so clear, you already know, what changed? Someone showed up and planted seeds. The soil was rich, it was fertile. Someone just showed up and planted seeds and changed everything about the Rio Grande Valley. Last week, some of you were here, and Dana began a two-part series about one of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the sower. And I'll kind of recap what Jesus taught in that. Jesus said that he was talking to an agricultural society. He said that there was this farmer, and he took seed, and he spread this seed out. And some landed on the pathway, and the pathway was packed and hard, and it couldn't sink into the pathway. And these birds would come and pick up the seed and carry off with it. Nothing would grow there. Some of the seed would land on soil that was shallow. There was rock beneath it, and, and the seed would sprout up almost instantly. But because the roots were so shallow, when the sun would come up, it would all wilt and die, and nothing would come of the shallow soil there. He said there was other soil that, that was filled with weeds and with thorns in it, and, the, and seeds would land in that, and they would grow, but they would get choked out by the weeds and thorns, and nothing would come of that. And then he would say, but there was fertile soil. There was fertile soil, and seed would land on that soil, and this crowd would know it. He would say, there will be 30 times as much as you plant. There'll be 60 times. There'll be 100 times as much as you plant. 
And then in Matthew 13, where this comes from, later in the passage, he tells his disciples what he means by it. And he says, the, the seed is the word of God, which in essence, it is Jesus or the message of Jesus. He say, the seed is this. And he said, the, the hard path, those are people with hard hearts. They, they don't understand and they don't care. There's no opening there. And the seed lands on that and bounces. Nothing comes of that. He said the, the shallow soil, these people with shallow hearts, and, and instantly they, they love this message. There's forgiveness, there's grace, there's new life. They love that. But the instant there's a struggle, there's a problem, they fade and, and nothing comes of their life either. They just fade and trail off. They, they forget what they heard about the good news of Jesus. And then he said there's this soil that is good soil, but there are weeds and thorns and and the seed sprouts in their lives. There are these lives that are distracted lives, though. And they begin to get distracted by some worries and concerns about life. And they get distracted about the pursuit of money. And a little time passes and nothing comes of it in their life. Nothing comes. And then he says, but there is this life that's it's tied to the fertile soil, this open heart. And someone with an open heart, they hear this message of good news about him, about Jesus. And within their life, there is so much fruit that's born. Their life is transformed. Not just theirs, but other lives are transformed as well. And, and I found myself, again, I found myself thinking this. If no one comes and, and plants seeds, it doesn't matter how fertile the soil is, does it? I thought back to the Rio Grande Valley, and I thought centuries and maybe millenniums of fertile soil, and nothing came of it until someone planted seeds. And I thought the very same thing is true of lives in my world, in your world, in my neighborhood, in yours. I started to say in my workplace, in yours, but my workplace is all Christians, but your workplace probably isn't. In, in our world, there are people that, that fit all of the categories that Jesus gave, but it doesn't matter the condition of their heart if no one plants a seed, Right? If no one plants a seed, it doesn't matter how fertile the soil is. And I think about the valley. It was just scrub brush, thorns, and rattlesnakes until someone planted seeds. And this is what Scripture says around this from a spiritual um, take on this. Romans 10, 13 and 15 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I need to explain that psalm. It's not just everyone who calls out the name of Jesus, just shouts it, will be saved. In the context of Scripture, it means everyone who, who calls upon who he really is as the one who forgives sins and leads lives, and calls on him and says, would you forgive my sin and lead my lives, my life? That's what it means. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him unless they have heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. See, how, how beautiful are those who plant seeds? How beautiful are those who plant seeds? Now, now here's the deal. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to hear this part really clearly God has remade every Christ follower in the image of a seed planter. If you're taking notes, write this down. God has remade every Christ follower already in the image of a seed planter, already. 
Every Christ follower in this room has already been remade toward the image of Jesus. He's the ultimate seed planter. And every single one who follows Jesus, every one of us, we've already been remade in that image of a seed planter. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus said, it says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. In other words, I have all power on heaven and earth. Therefore, because I have all power, all authority, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. He's speaking to every Christ follower who is a, therefore their disciple. He's saying, go make Christ followers of everybody else, of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. Be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's talking to every single Christ follower. He's saying, this is how I wired you, this is how I've remade you to be a seed planter. Matthew 5, he speaks of it. He talks about, speaking of those that follow him, you're the salt of the earth. Uh, You're the the light of the world. You're the one to carry the change that comes from the good news that that I bring. 1 Peter 2.9, Peter's talking to the church, to those that believe in Jesus. He says, you're a chosen people. You're these royal priests. You're a holy nation. You're God's very own possession. As a result of that, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. As a result of you knowing Jesus, you can tell others the goodness of God. So if you're a follower of Jesus here, it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert. It doesn't matter if you're an artist or an engineer. It doesn't matter if you are a teacher or a student. It doesn't matter if, if you are a leader or a follower It doesn't matter if you are a recent Christ follower or a longtime Christ follower. It doesn't matter if you're old or young. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. He's already remade you just as you are. The personality you have, the life you have, the the knowledge you already have, the circumstances you're in, he's already made you in the image of a seed planter. He's already done that. Every Christ follower is already in the image of a seed planter. Now, if I just quit there and say, okay, now go do it, there'd be a good number of you that would think, oh man, I've, I've known I'm supposed to do that, but I've never been good at it and I don't know how to do it. And so I feel guilty right now and I'll go eat Mexican food and I'll feel guilty over Mexican food and I'll try to forget it as fast as I can because I just feel guilty. I can't do it. It's not me. Here's the truth you can. There, 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 are, two, there are two things you can do today And they're the most profound things you will ever be able to do today if you're a follower of Jesus. The first is this. So how do you plant seeds? The first is this. You tell people what you have experienced with Jesus. You simply tell them what you have experienced with Jesus. It says in Acts 1.8, this is Jesus speaking. He's saying, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You'll be my witnesses. In our judicial system, what is a witness called to do? Simply to tell what they have seen and heard and experienced, right? Nothing more than that. They're not called to get up on stage and and be an expert on something that they're not an expert in. They're just simply called up on stage to say what they have seen and heard and experienced. And Jesus is saying, you are my witnesses. What you've experienced in me, that's what you need to tell. That's what I expect you. That's, That's where the power is. And what you have experienced. Why? You're the expert in that subject. 
I mean, who else can refute what you've experienced and what you tell? You're the expert in that subject. This week, I spent some time with a, a man who became a follower of Jesus six months ago. And he was telling me about this change that's happened. He said, I, he said, I had known my whole life, all my adult years, I said, I, I realized that while I love my family very much, very deeply, and they have a very close, integrated, extensive family, I love them a lot. I have some close friends. I love them a lot. But he said, I've been aware of my whole adult life that beyond that, I just really didn't care about people. There's the next layer out there. I didn't really care. It's their life, their issues. And he said, especially if I saw somebody that was in a bad position, I thought they'd probably put themselves there, tough luck, you know, fix yourself. And he said, I realized that there was kind of this, there's this low buzz within me that I just wish it was different. But he said, the last six months, like I hadn't even focused on that. That is changing. See, now I find myself, and with this next layer of people, I find myself, I just care about their lives. He said, now I see total strangers, especially ones that seem to be struggling, and I, found there's, I find there's something in my heart that becomes very tender toward them. And he said, I went through decades. And again, he said, it's not that I've been trying. This has just changed. And I found myself thinking, what could be more powerful for a coworker to hear or for a neighbor to hear than in conversation for this man to say to a coworker or a neighbor or a friend, someone across the dinner table, say, hey, there's something really cool happening within me. You know, for all of my adult years, this was true of me. This was just reality. But, but I began to follow Jesus back six months ago. And, and this is changing. I'm becoming a new man. What could be more powerful than that? There's another man I spent time with this week, and he's become a follower of Jesus just this year, just within this calendar year. And we were having this conversation, and I, I've known him um, before he became a follower and after. And he even told me before, he said, I've got, I've got this one huge flaw. Not that it's my only one. I've got this huge flaw. I have this temper. And he said, it doesn't, it's not that something triggers it, and I have this slow bake, and I move from passive to very I, I, deep anger. He says it's instant, and it does damage, and I hate it. I wish it weren't true of me. And so this calendar year, he's become a follower of Jesus. And I spent time with him this week, and he said, he said, since I began to follow Jesus, my temper has not done that one single time. And, and I probably should have said, well, it still might. It still could, because sometimes it's a, it's a progression. But he was just saying the truth is it's been, there's been a stretch of time now and, and it hasn't happened, and I've never had a stretch like this in my life. And I thought, what more powerful, compelling information about Jesus could there be than him with a neighbor across the fence or a friend at dinner or a co-worker to say, hey, could I tell you something going on in my life? And they might be one who experienced his temper before. And for him to say, you know, I've, I've recognized the problem. I've hated that about me, but it's been true. But I began to follow Jesus back, you know, this recent time. And ever since then, it, it hasn't happened. I'm, I'm changing. And the only explanation I have is simply Jesus. The 22 from FCC that went to London, what did they do? They just simply sat down with people and got to know them. And at some point, if, if there was any opening, they just said, can I tell you what I have experienced about Jesus? Can I tell you what I've experienced about Jesus? When Marie and I first became Christ followers, 
the change in our lives was so significant, we authentically, we wanted other people to know him. We wanted that, and we did it badly for a while. We, I, was a, I was an engineer, and so I thought, I will sit someone down, and I will logically bring them to trust Jesus, and if there's a problem, I will argue them into the dirt until they trust Jesus, and that didn't work at all, and then there were other attempts we tried, and then just by trial and error, I wish someone had told us this, by trial and error, we just discovered with friends and family and co-workers, if just in conversation, for example, someone would often say, or we would say to them, how was your weekend? And they would say, went to the ball game, had a great time, my team won, and yours lost, and all that, and, and, and how was your weekend? And I would authentically say, because the best part of it would be, man, we were, we were at church Sunday, and there was this song that, man, it grabbed my soul. It was about this subject, and you should listen to it. But, but man, that was the heart of my weekend. Or this was back before I was a pastor, and I could do this back then. I would say, man, there, we were at church, and the guy that was teaching said something that has messed up my world. It has got me thinking in a whole new way. Can I tell you about it? Or, or sometimes we would say, uh, man, we've been in this small group, and, and this is what's happened within the group. And we found people were so open to hearing that. And if they didn't even want to pursue it, it wasn't like we shut down the conversation. It was just, it was just conversation. We can go back and talk about the football game if you want to. It, it's just simply telling people about what you have experienced with Jesus in your life. And there's a key part of this. At some point, you and I need to learn how to tell the story of, of how we actually trusted Jesus. And we need to be able to tell it in a concise fashion. Because most of us, and this was true of me, most of us, there was this long, convoluted process. And if someone asked, well, tell me exactly like how it happened. And I would start my story, and about 30 minutes later, there is sleeping, and I haven't even gotten to Jesus yet. I mean, my whole life story, and and someone a long time ago said, you got to be able to boil this down to three minutes or less. And they said, the key is, if you'll find what it was that, that made you seek him or look for him and be open, if you find what it was, what was happening in your life, that's probably, that's the core of your story. And, and tell them, and I'll give you these terms. Tell them, and here are the terms. I'll give you the terms first. Tell them, this is the story, three parts, B.C., Tell them what life was like before Christ in your life. What was, what was the pull that made you look? B.C. Then tell them exactly what happened at conversion. Like they need to know exactly what happened, like, like what actually transacted there, what transpired there. And then tell them A.D. And A.D. actually means it's Latin for Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And it means tell them what's changed now. You were pursuing him. You were looking to see if he was real and authentic and true. And you believe he is What's changed? I got a call from a man that I had, had not met, a uh, very successful professional, and he wanted to have dinner around some spiritual things. And so we have this dinner, and he's sitting down telling me, and I, I had researched him a little bit before I sat down to dinner, and, and I knew what he said was true. Um, internationally renowned within his field, around the globe, and a lot of money because of that, and a beautiful family, and a home like you could not believe. And he's sitting there, um, and it, it, he's looking for words. But in essence, he's saying, I got all this stuff. I got all this applause, and isn't there more? And I don't know this guy, and I don't know his attention span, and, and he doesn't know me very well. He doesn't know me at all. He just heard someone told him to call me. And so I said, I think I can relate. 
I said, as a teenager, I thought there's got to be more to life. And so I started to look for what the more was. And I said, I thought at the age of 23, I thought I found the more. I found, I found Marie Yannick and, and my college sweetheart. And I married her. And I said, and 38 years have passed, and she is still my sweetheart. She's, in my, my view, she's the finest woman on the planet. But she wasn't the more. And so I kept looking for the more. And at 27, I got a highly coveted position in my company. I thought it was the more, but it wasn't. And I kept looking. At 28, we designed and built and moved into our dream home. I thought it was the more, but it wasn't. And about that time, we visited church. And then we got suckered into attending a small group. We thought, oh, man, we'll go once and we'll bail. And they suckered us back a second time. And about the second time, we thought there's something different about these people. They would, they would talk about Jesus like they knew him. Not like a subject matter, like they knew him. And we kept coming back and coming back. And, and I thought, maybe he's the more. And so I told this man, I said, 30 years of age, I'm on this hillside, and I had, I had looked deeply, and I came to a point where I authentically believe He is the Son of God. So I asked Him to forgive all my sins, and I asked Him to lead my life. And I felt a seismic shift. I felt something has just changed. And 30 years have now passed, and He is the more. He is the more. How long did that take to tell? Three minutes? And then I just left it to Him. We can go talk about money in big houses if he wants to, but the entire rest of the supper was questions. Tell me about, tell me about, tell me about that. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to, to, and it may take a while, but craft down, hone down. Someone's going to say, tell me exactly how it happened. And, And right in the middle of the story, they need to hear you say, I ask him to forgive my sins and lead my life. That's when it all changed. That's when it shifted, when it authentically, and I meant it. Ask him to forgive my sins and lead my life. Um, just, just tell people what you have experienced with Jesus. The second thing, this is the only other thing, main thing I have to tell you that, that we are called to do primarily, is introduce people to the church as quickly as possible. Just introduce them to the church as quickly as possible. And, and it's, it's almost a no-brainer. Because when you do that, it exponentially multiplies the number of seed planters in their life. Right? If you're the only one, you're the only one who they're looking at who's giving them information that might draw them to Jesus. But if you introduce them to the church and they show up, there are a bunch of parkers out there and there are a bunch of greeters, there are a bunch of ushers. There are a bunch of people sitting here that know Jesus all around them. There are some children's ministry people. There's student ministry, men's, women's, on and on and on. I mean, you've gone from one seed planter to 1,500 seed planters all at one time. As, as quickly as you're able to introduce them to the church just so they'll be exposed to more and more seed planters. There's a mom I got an email from earlier this month, and, and she's learned with this rich experience how important it is. She has this um, nearly three-year-old daughter. She's almost three, and this mom is wanting to influence her daughter spiritually, and, and she's almost discovered by chance the power of of her and her husband not being the only ones to influence the daughter to Jesus. And so she's writing this to me. This is part of the email. She said, our our daughter, for the past months, will not forgive us missing the Sunday service. She counts the days to go back to church, and, and if one of those Sundays when I can't wake up on time and we miss church, she does not let it happen again. 
All of her favorite places, toy store, zoo, museum, park, bookstore, they don't compare. Every day of the week, she's waking up crying because she wants to go to church and not school. We normally tell her, we can't go to church because the church is closed. It's only open on Sundays, and, and then she just hopes the day is away to get to Sunday. So the mom's writing, this past Sunday, we drove into the parking lot, and she said, yay, we're here. Mommy, can you leave me here? Don't pick me up. Okay, Mommy, don't pick me up. Just leave me here. Then as we left, she asked my husband if we could get the keys to the church so we could come back. And the mom is realizing, there are all these seed planters. It's not just up to mom and dad. There are all these seed planters. And and this mom has this daughter inserted with all these other seed planters, all of them. There's a man that I met um, recently. I met. Uh, met him on a Saturday and had a conversation. I kind of asked his story, and uh, yeah, how did you find the church? And he said, uh, you know, there's a, there's a friend named Brandon, Brandon and his wife. And Brandon's wife, my wife, they work together, and so this friendship has grown. And so Brandon and his wife, they, they invited us to church. About, about six months ago, we started coming. And we come all the time, and we, we uh, continued conversation. I kind of pressed in, and he said, I, like, I'm not a follower of Jesus, uh, but, but there's something you know, very intriguing, very stirring going on here. And, and I'm thinking, this is all happening because there's this friend named Brandon. And Brandon not only is exhibiting a life that follows Jesus, Brandon is saying, hey, why don't you come with us? This is on a Saturday. We're having this conversation. And, and I, I didn't say anything. I didn't say any. I just listened. And the next day on Sunday, this guy gives his life to Jesus. And so I, I called this guy's name is Matt. His friend's name is Brandon. And I called them this week and I said, could I sit down with both of you? I just want to hear the story of where it all began. And, and indeed, it was just what I thought. Um, Matt wasn't looking for God. He wasn't looking for Jesus. But this, there's this couple that became friends with them. And a friendship is born. And, and Brandon and his wife... Uh, just have this sense, if we're the only seed planters, who knows, but if we could, if we could have 1,500 of them, and, and indeed, and, and Matt, Matt was telling me, this, this guy invited me, and I found myself thinking, if, if Brandon hadn't, would Matt have trusted Jesus back a few weeks back? Only God knows, but probably not. Why? Because it wasn't just Brandon and his wife, it was the whole church. It was the whole church. It was the whole church. And there's this, there's this unique opportunity right now. You may have some friends or neighbors or coworkers, and you have tried to plant seeds, and you've tried to invite them into church, and they've said no six times. But there's something unique about Easter that is this coming Sunday, something unique about Christmas, that the likelihood of people going up, of, of attending, goes sky high on those two events. And so there may be some people in your life you've invited, 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 and you think they're sick of the invitation. I mean, we're on the verge of one of the two most likely times in the entire year they'll say yes. And one of the most likely times of the year. And, and if they come, they're going to be this parking lot filled with parkers. There'll be these greeters that will meet them. There'll be these ushers. There'll be this children's ministry. There'll, this place will be packed with a bunch of Christ followers on stage. I know what's going to happen on stage. There's going to be this incredible worship. There's going to be this beautiful, striking, artistic element that unfolds. I know there's going to be this, this very clear, profound message of the good news of Jesus. 
And I say that because there are people in my world, the people in your world, and, and they need someone to plant one more seed and say, hey, next Sunday, next Sunday, would you come? This is what's at stake. I was thinking back to my days as a kid growing up about the Rio Grande Valley, and I thought what I got to experience was this, this lush environment. These citrus orchards every place, tangerines in my yard and farms as far as you can see and everything. And I thought the reason it happened is because it, it had used to be scrub brush and thorns and rattlesnakes. Oh, who wanted to live there? What was at stake was someone planted seeds that changed everything. God says this about every human life. He says every human being is made in his image. But every human being, that image has been deeply marred and damaged by sin. If there's not redemption, this is what God says. And this is from Scripture. This is from Scripture. This is what God says. He says that person is lost. The word Jesus chose, that person is lost, sinner, slave, prisoner, guilty, condemned, separated from God, rejected by God. It even says they're children of Satan. And it says, and Jesus more than anyone says, their eternity, if nothing changes, their eternity is hell. But Scripture also says if they come to Christ, surrender their lives, everything changes. Jesus picked the word. He said they're not lost anymore. They're found. Then Scripture says they're they're loved, chosen, accepted, adopted, affirmed, a masterpiece, a new creation, a saint, an heir, They're holy, they're without fault. They're complete, they're victorious, their eternity is heaven. And and this is is the heartbeat of God. One place it states it, it's 2 Peter 3, 9. This is about people. And the, the context of this is that some years had passed since Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven. And some people thought he would have come back already very quickly, and he hadn't. And so they're saying, well, why hasn't he come? And so Peter prompted by the Holy Spirit, says this. God God isn't late with His promise as some measure lateness. He's restraining Himself on account of you, holding back the end because He doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone space and time to change. The heartbeat of God is that no one is lost. Everyone is found. Everyone is found. So I would urge you, if you're a follower of Jesus, I would urge you, Plant seeds everywhere. Don't think, because I've made this mistake before, um, you never know the condition of someone's heart. You never know if, if uh, their heart is really hard toward things of God or not. And, and even if it is, the condition of a heart can change so quickly. Uh, back a few weeks back, I met a man that uh, in conversation with him and just kind of observing him being around him, uh, I thought, this guy, this guy, is, he's the first soil. He's, he's the hard heart. Man, there is not a single opening there. And, and in my mind, I thought, there's no way this guy's going to come to Jesus anytime soon. Not this year, maybe not this decade, maybe never. This guy, just everything that I saw, so closed off, so closed off. So two days later, later he gives his life to Jesus. 
And go figure. Was I right or wrong about, about the condition of his heart? I don't know. Maybe it was hard. Maybe I was wrong. But even a hard heart can change in, a, in an instant from one beat to the next. And so I say just spread seeds everywhere. Spread seeds everywhere with abandon. And a seed that's planted is never lost. My parents planted seeds in my life for 30 years before they finally sprouted and grew. For 30 years they planted seeds. But they were still there. They, they laid dormant on the ground for 30 years. They were still there. When I was in seminary, I um, studied some extensive surveys that had been, been done across America over a wide period of time. And I found it fascinating to find out that for the average person who follows Jesus, for the average person, there were nine Christ followers who had planted seeds in their life before they trusted Jesus. There were nine people who had significantly influenced them or, or spoken to them or tried to draw them toward Jesus before they actually came. And so you may be the first one to plant a seed, but there are eight more to come. You may be the fifth one. You may be the ninth one to come. The message of that is just plant seeds everywhere. How do you do it? You simply you, you tell people what you've experienced with Jesus. Tell them what you've experienced and you introduce them to the church as quickly as possible. And Easter's here. I've been reading the book of Acts lately. This is so cool. Uh, the very first Easter, Jesus has risen from the dead. And the church went nuts. They told everybody about him rising from the dead. They told everybody. Then there was this explosion of new followers of Jesus. You read the book of Acts and... Every page, it seems like, it says there were 5,000 more, there were 3,000 more, there were more, 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 just page after page. Why? Because they, they, was just this, they, were, they decided they're going to fill every basket with seeds they could and just spread them wildly after the first Easter. And here's the challenge I think that God would give us is this week, just wildly plant seeds, wildly people you know really well, people you know a little bit, people you don't even know, people you may never see again, wildly plant seeds. Who knows? Who knows what God might do? Who knows what God might do? Let me close this way. Rather than any distraction around that singular focus, would you stand? And I want to pray and ask God to leverage this within us. And, and when I say amen... My hope is because we're ending on this thought like, you know, Jesus, you're, you're already in the image of a seed planter and you call the plant seeds and, and Easter's about to come now. And if you, if 15 minutes from the time you leave, you've forgotten what this is all about, I'll be deeply disappointed. And if tomorrow morning when you wake up, if you forget what this is about, I'll be deeply disappointed. We're going to end on this, this one singular focus, Father in heaven.